morning. Um, you might want to grab a Bible from the seats in front of you and turn to page 599. The reading today is taken from Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted, there the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then the people go out to their work, to their labor until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And uh, thank you, Sarah. Hey, just before we start, I, I should uh, mention we have got a great parents' room that has recently been renovated like three days ago. So if you want to christen some couches with your uh, glorious warm presence, then uh, feel free to do that if you have little ones. Um, it would be exceptionally helpful if you had uh, Psalm 104 and kept it open. I'm going to pray for us, and we shall crack along. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness in creating a world for us to live, for giving us life, and then, to speaking, and then for speaking to us through your scriptures. So speak to us through them right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 18% is the number. 18%. 18% is the percentage of the primary vote that the Greens candidate secured at the most recent by-election in Manly. Now, 30 years ago, the Australian Greens were a sideshow party at the real fringes of Australian political life. And let me say, they kind of looked like it too, didn't they? Uh, living up to the sort of hippie, tree-hugging stereotypes. But today in modern Manly, one out of every five people gave their vote to the Greens candidate. Now, of course, some people might just like the Greens candidate, Clara Williams-Rolden. Uh, I met her last year. She's young, she was very thoughtful, respectful, and well-researched when I met her. I'm not saying I voted for her, but I'm saying her personal demeanour and her professionalism commended her cause, and so maybe some people just liked her. But more probably, one-fifth of the people of Manly think that environmental concerns are so 
important that they voted one for Greens. Now, in a way, that kind of makes sense. If you walk through that door, you walk to the end of that path, you turn right and you walk along to the point, I think you've got one of the prettiest sights in the world, whichever direction you look. And, and frankly, if you don't appreciate that sight, you're probably not welcome in Manly, are you? <laughs> Let's be honest. I wonder, though, if you've ever thought about the issue of the environment from a Christian perspective. I wonder if you've ever heard a sermon about this topic. Very strange if you haven't. Do you think Jesus was an environmentalist? Is God green? And should we go green for God? All very good questions to be asking at a time when our surrounding culture is highly interested in this topic. And across this little series that we're calling Hotspots, we're trying to cover a range of issues from a biblical perspective, a Christian perspective, so that we can engage with the world around us because it's an important thing to do. We want to engage with our culture with love and intelligence and coherence and integrity. And that's uh, partly why this little series over the next four weeks is going to be so important for us. How do we articulate our faith in an age where there is pressure to be silent, if not ashamed of it? How do we think and talk respectfully about God's design for marriage and sexuality when the prevailing ethos is about freedom to do whatever you want? Can we actually talk plainly about gambling when it's our national pastime? And should we go green for God? Well, going green for God is the topic that we're going to cover today. And before we answer the question of whether we should go green for God, the better starting point is to see that God is himself green. Uh, that is, he cares for his own creation. He's green in that sense. And if you think about it, even using that terminology, calling it creation rather than the environment or planet Earth or Mother Nature, we're saying something significant, aren't we? We're actually saying that there's a, a creator who made a creation, and this creator has a unique relationship to the creation. And that's exactly what we see throughout the scriptures. Of course, we see it in Genesis 1 in that kind of highly dramatic account where God fashions the world at his spoken command and pronounces that everything that he has made is very good. But you see it in other places throughout the scriptures as well. For example, after the flood in Genesis 9, God affirms his commitment to his creation with these words to Noah. Genesis chapter 9. I now establish my covenant with you, Noah, and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock... All the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And the sign of this covenant, God's great commitment to preserve his creation, is of course the rainbow, isn't it? Okay, so whenever we see a rainbow, we're not meant to think pots of gold at the end and keep driving in vain hope. We're not meant to think gay pride. We're not to, meant to think some kind of unicorn convention where everything is blissful. We're meant to think that God is green in that he is committed to his creation. And doesn't it actually say the exact same thing in Psalm 104 verse 9? Have a look in your Bibles. Never again will the waters cover the earth. Uh, Psalm 104, which Sarah read for us, not only describes God as creator but how kind of all ecosystems rely on his provision, how everything's integrated. The water flows uh, through the mountains, through the ravines, and it waters the animals, and it, 
Um, it causes the grass to grow and humans cultivate it. Everything is integrated. But it is not in just some kind of hippie sort of simplistic way, right? It's not all beer and skittles. Lions are roaring for their prey, which is good for the lions. Not all that good for their prey, is it? And then did you notice the humans have to go out and work all day until evening? And then a little bit further along, there is even death. So it's not this kind of idealistic view of things, but all creation is subject to God and his making and his provision and his sustaining and his care. Uh, the last verse Sarah read, verse 24, it says, The earth is full of his creatures. Many are his works. It is, after all, his creation. And friends, what this means is that our very first call to action when it comes to green matters is to call upon the God of wonders, the Lord of all creation, to be at work in his world. We can sometimes get massively confused about the future of the late great planet Earth. In places like Revelation 21, it sounds like uh, this world's going to be renovated in preparation for the new heavens and the new Earth. In places like 2 Peter chapter 3, it sounds like it's going to be destroyed in preparation for a replacement. And we're wondering, is it going to be renovated? Is it going to be replaced? And I take it that the reality is, is going to be some sort of combination of the two. There's going to be continuity and discontinuity. Isn't that what we saw in the resurrection of Jesus? There was continuity and discontinuity. Like after he'd risen from the dead, he had a face that people still recognized. They knew it was him. He could sit down and eat breakfast with his disciples. So there's continuity. But then he could also do crazy things like just appear in rooms and ascended to heaven. So rather than us getting all stressed out about whether there's any point in going green if it's all going to burn, or alternatively, that it's all up to us to keep the universe spinning, we can give the future of our creation to God in prayer. He knows it better. He cares for it more deeply. He is more committed to its future than we are. And if he can create a universe by his commands, if he can wreak the sort of change in our lives by his spirit, then surely he can turn around the decline of the planet to which he is committed. Surely he can, as it says in verse 30, renew the face of the ground by his spirit. This world is his world, and he is green. He cares deeply about it. One of the interesting things, though, we discover about God's greenness and his concern for our world or his creation is that part of the way that he exercises his concern for it is by placing humanity in charge of its care. So not only is God green in that he cares for his creation, but he would like us to be green too. That is, he wants us to play a central role in the preservation of the environment. And again, this, this is just embedded in the pages of Scripture all over the place even in places that we wouldn't kind of naturally first think of. Uh, for example, if you ponder it, Noah really was a conservationist, wasn't he? He preserved species of animals, bringing them into the ark in breeding pairs. You might remember in Genesis 3 that the land is cursed because of the disobedience of the first humans, and we really can trace uh, natural disasters, spiritually speaking, to that point. And yet in the book of Leviticus, we learnt that the people of Israel were to give the land a rest every seven years. 
So it wasn't just the people who rested, even the ground was to fall fallow every seven years. The ground would be blessed with rest. And you can imagine the regenerative impact on the ground by not being overworked continuously. Proverbs even says that a righteous man is one who cares for the needs of his animals and knows the conditions of his flocks. So it's all over the place. But the most prominent place in which we are told to be green is in the opening chapters of Genesis, which, with what is often called the creation mandate. These words will be familiar to you. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then in the next chapter, which really zeroes on the creation of humanity, you'll remember this word in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Well, that's striking, isn't it? We have all sorts of ideas about what it means to be made in the image of God. Uh, we think it means that we're spiritual beings. Uh, we think it means that we're creative beings. We think it means that we're relational beings, all of which are probably true. But the explicit connection that is made between being made in the image of God is to us ruling or stewarding the creation. That is ruling God's world in God's way on his behalf. It's actually inherent to who we are as God's image bearers. <coughs> now, uh, I know we're not allowed to have footy illustrations in this church, so um, this is not actually about football, it's about statues. Um, but I had to jump on this opportunity because if you come from Queensland, like I do, you're, um, you're taught to love state of origin footy because it's the go-to way in which we are to demonstrate our superiority over New South Wales. Now, let me say, as a Queenslander, this is a stupid strategy. It's been good for the last 10 years, a stupid strategy. Because if I were devising a strategy, strategy to show why Queensland is a superior state, I would just poll people on where they go for holidays. Because you go to places on holidays that you really would like to live, but you can't. And so I just think that demonstrates our superiority. So... Uh, where are you going on holiday, sir? Oh, you're taking the family to the Gold Coast. Where are you off, ma'am? On oh, Noosa. Your Honour, I rest my case. See? But because the Queenslanders are uh, hell-bent on this football strategy, it's very important that everybody knows about Wally Lewis. There's a picture of him here. Probably the greatest footy player to ever play for Queensland. He last played in 1991, but they still call him the king to this very day. And Lang Park, or Suncorp Stadium, is where he played his best footy for Queensland, and that was really his kingdom. King's got to have a kingdom. And after they retired, they built a statue of Wally Lewis outside Lang Park to remind people that he will always rule the park. Now, being made in the image of God means we humans are like little Wally Lewis statues, except that we are living and that we're ruling the earth as God would rule it on his behalf. And if we're going to rule the creation on God's behalf, then we've got to do it in his way. 
And that's going to require us to show the same sort of concern that he does for creation. In other words, you cannot take the creation mandate we looked at in Genesis to mean just do whatever you want with the planet's resources, pillaging it of every good thing for short-term profit. You just can't do that. You'd have noticed the instruction to work it and to take care of it. So both ruthless industrialists who take no care and extreme environmentalists who want no work upon it need correction. But it remains that we should go green too, if that means caring for our creation, because it's the mandate that God has given us and as a species, us alone, as his image bearers. So we should go green. There is uh, a second reason why I think as Christians... uh, I mean, Western wealthy Christians in particular, why we should go green. And that is a very basic principle of love for neighbor. I mean, ask yourself this question. Who do you think will be the most greatly affected by our greedy and unnecessary overconsumption of this planet's resources? Who's going to be most affected? Because it's not going to be us. It's going to be future generations. It's going to be people from poorer countries. Have you ever wondered why the men of Somalia, this country on the Horn of Africa, one of the world's poorest nations, have turned to piracy, modern-day piracy? Because you don't think it's because they were just watching Johnny Depp carry on like Captain Jack Sparrow one day and thought, boy, this could be fun for us. Why do you think they do it? In part, at least, it's because the international fishing fleets overfished their waters. That is, ships from richer countries have taken all their fish and gave them little option but to turn to piracy. Poorer nations are more susceptible to wild weather and weather fluctuations that result from climate change. They are least able to respond to natural disasters when they occur. And so Kevin Rudd was not far off, I don't think, when he described climate change as a moral challenge, not just an economic one and not just an environmental one. If we have love for our poorer neighbours, if we have love for future generations, we even care about other species, then we will not dismiss this question as one that has only tangential interest to Christians. Just as God is green, I do believe we ought to go green for God. So uh, we've got to turn to the practical questions then, don't we? How do we go green for God? Especially amidst kind of all the complexities of modern life, I remember having this conversation with one of my youth leaders back when I did youth ministry. And he says, I hate mining, Scott. I hate it. And I hate logging. So he's telling me that he hates mining while he's scrolling through his iPhone, which was made of stuff mined out of the ground and powered by electricity that came from coal-fired power stations. And he's sitting on my sofa, which has got wooden frames, in my house, which has got timber frames, presumably logged. Like, I don't think they fell there from the sky, right? And he'd travel over to my place, the single passenger in a one-ton mass of steel, powered by oil dredged out of the earth and polluting the atmosphere with its emissions. And I'm thinking, really, Matt, you really hate mining, do you? You're really against logging. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate your good intentions, man, but there's not simplistic solutions, is there? It's a very complex issue. Or you think about it at the macro level, right? 
If Australia is going to aim for a clean energy target of above 40% by the year 2030, which is proposed by Australia's chief scientist, Dr Alan Finkel, what's that going to mean for household electricity prices in Australia when they already are so expensive? Like, don't you get the bill and you're like, my goodness, we are not going to be able to eat for the next month. What's it going to mean for Australian businesses? What will that mean for Australian jobs? How can we move towards renewable and cleaner sources of energy, for example, rather than digging up and burning the non-renewable stuff if the market value of the stuff in the ground makes energy companies the most profitable businesses imaginable, giving them massive uh, economic and political clout? I mean, Australian businesses and politicians, they understand the complexities. I mean, this discussion brought down Mr Turnbull and Mr Rudd last decade. Who knows what's going to be the outcome of the current environmental discussion? But of course, what does it mean for the wider world? What does it mean for future generations if we don't pursue clean energy targets aggressively? You see, they're very complex questions. And you can't just sit on your couch going, I hate mining. So here are some uh, possibilities. And just as a starter, possibilities amidst the complexities. And they're going to require us to work at an individual level as well as at a kind of um, coordinated structural level as well. Because here's the thing, I don't think us just recycling our copy of the Manly Daily is going to make an impact if our politicians, our political leaders, don't feel like we're going to allow them to make courageous structural decisions with a long-term view in mind. Don't you sense there is slow progress here when time is of the essence? But how can our leaders make progress if they don't sense a communal hunger from us to address the big issues, even at personal and national short-term expense? We might think, man, there's so little we can do to change these massive systemic problems, but we have a vote. And that ought not to be taken for granted, nor thought of as a hassle. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that to be Christian is to vote green. Uh, I won't tell you what one of the eight o'clockers said to me after the sermon this morning. But you've got to weigh up all the policies of all the parties, don't you? But we do have a vote. And we do have a voice. This week I received a letter from our local member, the member for Manly, uh, James Griffin. I'm not special, by the way. It's, it's uh, addressed to your resident. So you probably got one as well, didn't you? <laughs> Uh, he's another young uh, person whose personal demeanour and professionalism really commends his cause. But let me quote what he said in the letter that, that you and I probably got. If you, very nice, by the way. If you have the time, well, I've got the time. If you have the time, I would be pleased to meet with you or you can send me an email, a letter, or even stop me in the street for a chat. Well, here's a picture of what he looks like. So if you see him in the street... You can stop him, or you can write to him and share your concerns. Uh, you might be uh, a glass-half-empty kind of person and go, what's he going to do? It's not like he's the, the person with the finger on the button, but he's closer to that person than you or I are, and he's my local rep, and I got a letter from him which has invited me to tell him what I think. Like, seriously, what do you reckon I should do? What do you reckon you should do? Can't be too defeatist about this. You know, back in the 1980s and 90s, we got um, chlorofluorocarbons, you know, the sprays, CFCs. We got them banned. 
try and fix the hole in the ozone layer. You know, apparently this last weekend in Germany, they generated 87% of their energy requirements from renewable sources, solar power and wind power. Apparently it was very sunny and very windy that weekend. 87% though. It's a good start for the Germans. So look, there are reasons to push ahead. Lots of work to be done if we're going to care for God's creation, we're going to care for our poorer neighbours, if we're going to care for future generations. I've got a voice, I've got a vote. And I've got purchasing power, which means that I should think very carefully about what I, what I buy, where it comes from, what the waste products are, where they're going. And I might have investments, I might even manage investments of clients, which gives me an opportunity to divert uh, money from companies that are altering the atmosphere, polluting land and oceans towards those which are seeking innovative and sustainable solutions. And I've got a brain, well, I think I do anyway, which means I can get clued up about ways to reduce my footprint upon this planet. You know, we can all watch the, the War on Waste uh, little doco on ABC iView. If you saw it, you'll know it was a cheeky show, wasn't it, where they filled up a Melbourne tram with, with takeaway coffee cups just to make a point. And they chased state premiers with these massive balls made up of 6,000 plastic bags. I mean, it's cheeky, but in three episodes, they made a compelling case for playing our part in reducing our impact on our planet. I can bring my reusable bag to Coles. And I can buy that kind of keep cup from my favourite cafe so that I don't have to keep using disposable cups. And I can recycle things. And I can compost. And I can reuse things. Oh, and by the way... I have the Holy Spirit within me and he is helping me be content with less. I can be content with fewer possessions, which means fewer resources consumed in their production, less waste from the production process. I can aspire to having a simpler life and eschew over consumption. I can be free of our prevailing culture, which continually insists you must have more money, more stuff, more experiences, more devices, bigger houses, better holidays, and so on. I've been a, uh, an absorbed onlooker and a sometime participant in the minimalist movement, which really centres on uh, removing everything that is non-essential in life so you can focus on the important things that remain. And it has really struck me that people from all walks of life, but predominantly non-Christians, have grasped the foolishness of just building bigger barns to store our stuff, which is what Jesus warned us about 2,000 years ago. So friends, I'm just saying that it seems to me that I can't throw up my arms in cynical despair and say there's little I can do when I've got voting power, when I've got vocal power, when I've got purchasing power, when I might have investment power, when I have spirit-empowered self-restraint and when I have a direct prayer line to the Creator in heaven. I'm simply saying that I think it's possible that we can go green for God. But friends, the very um, final word for today is a word of hope. And that is because God is reconciling all things, including the created order, to himself in Christ. Tells us that in Colossians 1, God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ. In Christ, there is not just hope for men 
women and children who turn and trust in him, but there is also for the rest of creation which suffers the ongoing consequence of human rebellion. I'm not saying the gospel of Christ is the same as caring for creation. We're not justified by recycling or composting. But because God is reconciling all things in Christ, my gospel life must include renewal and concern for the created world. Now, I have today said that God is green. Truth is, he's much better than green. Hasn't he got plans of gold to renew a whole new world? Hasn't that already been guaranteed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead? So let us let our faith in that resurrection, our hope in our own renewal, and our love for our creator God drive our care for the creation he has entrusted into our hands. Well, we need to pray. I want to close today in a prayer that's up on the screen. I've uh, amended this from the opening of a wonderful document called An Evangelical Declaration on the Care of Creation. I'm going to leave this up, but let me pray it for us on our behalf. Let's pray. We worship and honour you, God, as our creator. We therefore seek to cherish and care for your creation. We repent of our failure to tend the world that you entrusted to our care and are sorry for the way that we have polluted, distorted and destroyed so much of your handiwork. And yet we look to Christ in whom you are reconciling all things to yourself, both humanity and the created order, by his blood shed on the cross and his resurrection to new life. And as we await the renewal of all things, we commit ourselves to playing our part to protect and heal your creation for your glory. Amen. Amen. Just before I finish, some resources. If you want to look at that declaration, the details are there. If you want to check out War on Waste, that's on iview. And the Centre for Public Christianity got lots of good stuff. Well, we are going to finish by singing our final song. It's our collection song, so if you've got a white card, stick it in the bag when it comes around. Let's stand and sing.